for me, joy at work is being in a learning environment and every day feeling like you are acquiring new skills that allow you to solve problems better. So what problems are you trying to solve as an organization? And are you creating an environment where learning is symbiotic? It's not uh, something that takes you away from work. It's something that is just an intrinsic part of the work that you do. When's the last time you felt real joy about your work? If you spend most of your time focused on driving results, but not on driving more joy, you probably have a joy gap. Welcome to Joy at Work. On this podcast, we'll think about how to build a culture that infuses more joy into everyday work life. I'm your host, Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman of AT Kearney. Joy at Work is such an important topic right now. And this summer, I had the privilege of sharing some of my thoughts about building more joyful organizations in the Harvard Business Review. You can find a link to that article at atcarney.com slash joy at work. I've got a question for you. What have you learned so far this week? Might take you a second to come up with an answer. You've probably read a lot of emails and had a lot of conversations about work, but what have you learned that's actually new? Learning is so important for us as humans. Learning new things, figuring out new challenges, taking in new information. It's what makes us feel vibrant and alive. And at work, it's what keeps things interesting. So I can't wait to talk more with someone who is very bullish on learning and taking that new ground. If you've never heard of Catherine Parsons, you're in for a real treat. Catherine is the co-founder and CEO of the technology education company, Decoded. And we're going to talk about learning, joy, and where the future will take us. I'm very happy to welcome Catherine Parsons to the Joy at Work podcast. Catherine is a co-founder and CEO of the technology education company, Decoded. It's a fascinating story, and we're going to explore some of the advice and suggestions she has, and also the life learning on this topic, because the topic is learning uh, and joy and how that links together. Catherine, welcome. Hello. Yes, yes. Good to see you, at least on podcast first. Uh, I saw you a couple weeks ago in Europe. But for everyone listening here who, who doesn't maybe know about you and your fascinating work and life story, actually, can you tell us a little about Decoded and how you got there and what you're up to? So Decoded is a company that I started back in 2011 now, I think, in East London, Tech City, uh, Shoreditch, uh, you know, which is now known for its coders and creatives and startups and entrepreneurs. Very trendy, yep. <laughs> it is very cool and increasingly more expensive. The reason we were there originally was it was incredibly cheap. And we set out with the mission to really, well, it, it says what it does on the tin, you know, decode, demystify the digital world and, and put it in people's hands. And our first challenge was to teach anyone code in a single day. And, uh, you know, that was that really captured the imagination in in ways that I couldn't have even imagined, really. And uh, fast forward to today, you know, we're now teaching not around our kitchen table in East London, which we used to, but in about 85 different cities across the world. And we've gone beyond code to data, AI, cybersecurity, and uh, increasingly working with the working world, the world of professionals at 
upskilling them in terms of their data literacy, but also now their data skills, which is the new frontier for us, actually providing real qualifications and upgrading people's skills very quickly. Uh, the DNA of everything that we did in Code in a Day has stayed with us today. That idea of just incredibly fast, immersive, fun, hands-on technology education and very different from lots of people's experiences of, let's say, IT in the classroom when they were growing up. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it was an amazing experience just uh, growing the business over the last six years. Well, congrats on that. You're on quite a roll. You had an interesting proposition that you mentioned, which is learning code in a day. Is that really possible? And what's the secret to that story? Yeah, absolutely. And it's good to kind of out myself a little bit as not having studied computer science, at, you know, university or engineering. And I actually graduated in 2003 with a degree from Cambridge University in classics, Latin and ancient Greek. You know, I was a linguist by background and um, I loved languages. I've always loved languages. I studied Mandarin and Japanese and French and ancient English, you know, actually anything that kind of looked like a code for me. And, and when I found myself in this scene of East London, you know, fast forward something like almost 10 years, it was clear that there was this new language in town. Technology was changing everything. You know, more people increasingly owned smartphones. It was the app economy. And I wanted to learn. You know, I really wanted to learn how to code. I wanted to understand how this stuff was made. But at that point in time, if you Google search the phrase learn to code or find a coding school, there was nothing. So I went and asked a few people actually if they would teach me. And I asked the CEO of an app development business, which I thought was a pretty good place to go. And, and I remember he said to me, you know, shh, just don't tell anyone. I don't actually understand how this stuff is done. You know, <laughs> go over there and ask one of the developers, you know, they know how it's done. And, and I found a friend of mine who was a a developer. And uh, and he turned around to me and he said, don't be ridiculous, Catherine, you could never learn this. You know, you haven't studied mathematics. I've been doing this for eight years. And uh, to be honest, I felt pretty demoralized at that point. I felt that, you know, this wasn't for me. It was too complicated and it would take a really, really long time. And I could have left it at that and, you know, trundled off and not let myself understand this stuff. But it was too important. You know, I knew that this was impacting every single aspect of our lives. And, and so that's where the Mission Impossible really came from, that you could take a subject matter as vast and seemingly complex as code and you could actually condense it maybe condense a year's worth of learning into a single day and really demystify it, take away all the jargon, take away all the cliches, place the evolution of that technology within a human timeline and history. And most importantly, put it in my hands. So teach me through doing. I wanted to create something in that day, hence coding an app from scratch in a single day. That was really the ambition, you know, to take someone from feeling completely alienated from the digital world and turn them into a literate, empowered, confident and active participant. It wasn't necessarily about turning people into developers in a day. In fact, I'd say a small proportion of people discovered that they wanted to go down that path. But it was about letting this be for everyone. 
and giving people the permission to be part of the digital world. And, you know, that was something that I just wanted to do for me. And it resonated with every single sector of society. And I think that was a very kind of interesting point for us to realize that we weren't the only ones who'd be made to feel excluded, that actually the CEO of technology companies through to people trying to maybe do a career change through to people graduating from university all felt that they wanted to understand this new language. As I listen to you, it's such an empowering journey that you describe, you know, from the past to now. And part of me feels inspired and part of me feels quite terrified by what you what you say there. But the focus on learning and having focus in the learning is one lesson, it seems to me, that you're drawing out. I was interested, you mentioned you studied classics, and uh, I did for a bit of time in college as well. And I remember these quotes, you know, knowledge is its own good, knowledge is fun. I remember that TV ad when I was growing up. But can you speak a little bit about that? Because I remember, and you were kind enough to speak at our recent Worldwide Partner meeting, you you asked everyone in the room to, to do this exercise about closing eyes and remembering a transformative learning experience. And uh, you ask us to, you know, think for a few minutes and and the like. Can you tell us a little bit about that little uh, moment of inspiration, personal inspiration that you put us on a few weeks ago? We could even do the meditation now if you wanted. Sure. Wow. Well, that's great. Sure. Why not? I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. Okay. I'm going to invite everyone who's listening to this to close their eyes, close your eyes. And I want you to go back and find a moment in time when you had a transformative and life-changing learning experience. A learning experience that changed you, that changed the way that you live, it changed the way that you think, it changed who you are. Go back and find and recreate that moment. What's the light like? Who's in the room with you? How do you feel? Find that moment and relive it. And now I want you to come back, capture that moment and come back to now. For a lot of people, they do find that experience very quickly, which is amazing. And I think it's important to share that experience with other people. But the one question that I ask people is when they had that learning experience. And I asked your room, who'd had that experience within the last five years of their life? How many had had it within the last five to 10 years of their life? And how many people had had it over 10 years ago. Now, it was a pretty even spread, I think, when I asked that question to to your audience, Alex. But what I said was, I'd asked that question to a room full of adults, you know, a few months beforehand. And almost every hand in that room went up for over 10 years ago. And what was actually really shocking about that wasn't just that. It was that those people with the learning and development leads at 500 different organizations across the world. Now, I think it's important to say that I don't think that that is their fault. 
But, you know, what is happening in the world when, you know, even our heads of learning haven't had a transformative learning experience in over 10 years? And we can take that even bigger. What's happening, you know, in the working world, in society, when we haven't had profound life-changing learning experiences in our adult lives? And actually, it forces us to look at learning. And when did we stop learning? What happened to education? And I took a quick look at the images that you find when you Google image search the word classroom for 1910 and 20 and 30, 40, right up until today. And it was incredible. It was the same image. And if you're really pushed to say what changes you could see in 100 years, fundamentally, what it looks like is that education hasn't really changed in 100 years. The structures of it have remained remarkably unchanged. And is there any other industry and sector that you can say that about in the last 20 years? So the way that we learn, you know, the 55-minute classroom, the way that we divide subjects, you know, the arts and the sciences. And we force people to do that at a very young age. And also just the way that we make people learn textbooks, rote learning, homework, and just the huge, huge industry of exams. Now, there are lots of really great things about these ways in which we've created the society that we live in. But essentially, does look like formalized learning stops in your early 20s, primary, secondary school, higher education. If you're lucky, you might do an MBA or a PhD if you're incredibly, you know, privileged or intelligent. But at the age of 24, that's it. You are now ready for the future of work. Now, I think we know that that isn't the education system that is going to prepare, number one, the next generation, but number two, us right now, right here for the future of work as it looks right now. The world has been utterly transformed in the last 20 years, and yet the education system, which is preparing us to live in it, hasn't changed at all. Well, Catherine, I want to come back to your observations on, you know, sort of the legacy learning problems that we have and link that to something you said earlier about, you know, millennials. Millennials are a different creature altogether. But before I do, one of the powerful things about your exercise that you started us off with was sort of reaching into our own personal background, like looking back 10, 20 years and, and, and the like. And I, um, I was thinking and trying to answer the question you asked us at the same time. And I would confess that both of my transformative examples were from more than 10 years ago. Uh, one was in college and one was sort of taking the family to a geographic journey over to Asia Pacific, which is something that we had no, we had some aptitude and interest, but it was a brand new experience at a very interesting time in that history. I wanted to hear your thoughts on what else you learned from folks who relay their individual, how to learn, how you listen to be able to learn, the bravery to try new challenges, self-learning, That uh, really interested in that sort of spiraling of thoughts there, the individual experiences and learnings that you've heard from people. I think you've really hit on something in terms of the bravery and the permission to learn. It's a big kind of message that I tried to put forward is, you know, I had to give myself 
permission to learn. And I think the reason why the work we were doing really struck such a chord and and grew so rapidly was we were creating an environment that felt incredibly safe and no question too stupid. It's really fun. We talk about wow moments. And really what that's hiding is it's creating an environment where people feel that they can safely say that they don't understand something, that they can give themselves that kind of freedom to explore and fail and through failure actually learn, be a- but be able to laugh at themselves. I was struck by the number of boards and governments that came to our little warehouse in East London to learn. They were actually, you know, the, the people most, you know, at the front end of driving and leading organizations and countries through this huge change were the most exposed when it came to actually being able to say, I don't understand this stuff. And so the bravery that's needed is is astronomical. So I do think that bravery and that, you know, permission, giving yourself permission to learn is incredibly important. Also for diverse audiences, We have a perception so much of who can learn this stuff, who can really get hands-on with coding or data science. We really have a visual identity of who that person is, which I think is potentially quite damaging. It means that people really exclude themselves from being the kind of person that is able to do something because of their gender, because of their background, because of what they studied, because of their age. The Future of Work report was conducted in 2014 and it estimated and it went very global that 50% of jobs could be easily replaced by machines in the next 10 years. But I think we really need to flip the dialogue on that piece of research because this isn't about writing off that 50% of people who are currently you know, of working age from the ages of 20 up to the age of 70 or beyond, our perception that somehow they can't upskill, they can't relearn, they can't transform themselves into, you know, a future version of who they used to be. Because some of the most transformative learning stories we're gathering are from people that would have been put in that 50% of people to be written off in the future of work. They can transform. It seems to me that as we grow up and go through these institutions of classrooms, which you say haven't changed in 50 years, you know, we just sort of go through this kabuki dance of, you know, following rules and and self-limiting us unnecessarily. Do you think, and you work a lot with millennials, I mean, that's all the folks that are or in my firm as well. Do you think the millennial generation have it different or figured this out earlier? Are they different in how they're approaching learning and what can we learn from them? You're right. We've had so many millennials apply for the Data Academy, for example, that we're currently offering across a range of different industries and sectors. But it is the millennials that seem to rise to the opportunity for learning within their careers, which is just so exciting in a way. And, you know, we're a company full of millennials as well. I think they're very misunderstood, actually, you know, because they are demanding, but they're demanding in such brilliant ways. What is wrong with demanding that, you know, learning is a priority within your career? And um, it is one of the number one employee benefits that is appealing to millennials when they're choosing where they work. They're not necessarily looking just for the high pay or the free food or the, you know, the puppies in the office, which 
by the way, <laughs> are all very, very good things to be offering. I think we kind of, we do, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's a lot of cliches going on at Dakota with, you know, the kind of millennial workforce. But I think underneath that, there's something a lot more serious going on, you know, and same with the, you know, the trend of veganism, for example. It's a consciousness. It's an awareness. It's an awareness of impact, whether that's what you're eating and what you're putting into your body or whether that's what you're putting into your mind and how that's going to nourish you for the long term and how that's going to help you grow. In fact, they're the anxiety generation. You know, the, we're living in this world where we're totally, we're told all the time that there's no career stability. You're going to be working until you're 90 years old. Expect to have 30 different careers in your lifetime. And in a way that they are responding to that. They are sponges for learning. And so that means that the first people to actually just leap on board employee learning schemes when they're offered. The challenge is the organizational structure as a whole. Um, larger, uh, more traditional businesses find it harder to create the space and the time and the management structures that actually send a message and realistically create an environment that enable lifelong learning within the organization. Our Data Academy is quite a, an ask. You know, it's four to eight hours of on-the-job learning a week. It's applied learning. So actually, a lot of the learning is being applied to current data challenges within the organization. But it does require a culture within which lifelong learning is celebrated and encouraged. But I I think if you want to attract, you know, the smartest, brightest, most ambitious millennial talent to your organization, offering that culture and offering those learning opportunities is almost number one. Well, you've clearly cracked the code, if you will, on creating a, a learning mindset at work and extrapolating that to how it could work, could work in a broader workplace and culture. If you put your finger on something very important and relevant here, I think that the importance of purpose in society, individual ambitions, but also in the workplace. And that links to why people want lifelong employability and not necessarily employment at the same company, especially one that doesn't change very much on its own. And then the purpose and work lead to the fun, the learning, the joy we get from each other. How can we as leaders of organizations or parents or what have you do a better job of instilling that magic formula that you're alluding to, the purpose work, the joy, the getting it all to work in harmony? I sometimes say that I think if you know, Leonardo da Vinci had existed today that he or she would most definitely be a technologist, a coder or a data scientist. But that wouldn't be their number one identification. Because for Leonardo da Vinci, really, it was all about looking at the world like it's a series of problems to be solved. And then secondary, looking at what tools and techniques he had at his disposal to try and solve those problems. And I feel like anyone can be that Renaissance individual today. But the first thing we need to be asking ourselves is, what are the problems that we're aiming to solve? And are they big enough? Are they big enough, juicy enough problems? The second thing is, do you feel that you have the tools and technologies at your disposal and the, the knowledge to be able to go and solve those problems? So a good company, a good country, really it's their role to be setting the big vision stuff. You know, these are the problems that we are going to go solve. And then I think it's a combination of factors that need to enable people to have permission 
to access the tools and the technologies that they need to actually go and solve those problems meaningfully. So for the individual, I think that is psychological. That's about giving yourself the permission to learn. And then I think for the organization and for the nation, it is about creating the policies and the subsidies and the budgets and the environments that enable a lifelong learning culture across the whole of that society. I love your formula. Always learning, always confident, yet humble, and always happy and purposeful in what you're doing. But I wanted to chat a bit about you for a moment because you you do have a bit of a stressful challenge being a CEO and an entrepreneur. It's a crazy elixir of obligations that you have. How do you find the joy and calm in your own journey in your day-to-day life? What, what, do you have any tricks for the trade for the rest of us? Oh gosh, I'm, I'm probably, I probably do need to introduce, I definitely get so much joy. I feel, I feel, you know, we're incredibly lucky with the work that we do. We're an education business and the impact of the work that we do is seen in the human capital. And, you know, when you're getting that right, it is rewarding. You know, actually seeing someone transform their career, someone described it as you've given me another 10 years in, in this business, you know, and that just feels amazing. I mean, we're obsessed. We're obsessed with learning. We're obsessed with the learning experience. How do you make it more simple? How do you measure excellence? How do you scale excellent learning experiences? How do you create wow moments? You know, there should be a wow moment every hour that you're learning where you sit back and you see the world differently. These are the things that we're we're basically thinking about every single moment of every single day. And yeah, we have a few mantras, you know, we say we're, you know, always learning and we're always teaching. And I suppose what we mean by that is as we scale as a business, you know, we could become victims of the very thing that we're out there to remedy, bureaucracy and process and, you know, all those kind of things. And and so that's really a look at your time and how you spend it over the course of a week. Was it predominantly spent in meetings talking about something, you know, very kind of obscure related to the business? Or was the majority of your time actually focused on the two core things that we do, which is teaching people or were you learning something? And if that's how the majority of your time was spent, it probably means that your time was spent well and you can get rid of everything else. So brutal simplicity in the business an absolute focus on the learning experience and outsource everything else. I love the uh, formulation of brutal simplicity combined with the wow moments, right? Because that crowds out all the other nonsense and low value added stuff. I think that's a great general mindset to have. And I also very much like your formulation of, you know, you're always a student and learning and trying to challenge new things you can, skills you can bring on and new mindsets, but also being a teacher, getting the the self-reward from watching other people develop and find their own gifts. I think that's very, uh, very inspirational. But what are some of the day-to-day disciplines that you institute to sort of keep yourself on the straight and narrow and being, you know, focused? Are, you know, do you, you do, do yoga in the morning? Do you go jogging? Do you <laughs> meditate? Do you scream at the wall? I mean, are there any anything that you feel comfortable sharing that uh, that uh, I mean, for myself, first thing I do in the morning just to clear my head is to not look at anything and just go outside for a jog. It, it could only be 15 or 20 minutes, but getting externally oriented and during the day, if I can find a hotel which has a, a hot sauna, just 15 minutes there and I'm 
I'm right as rain at the end of it. But those are two disciplines that I like to follow. Any useful thoughts from your side that could change the game? You know, at, a couple of years ago, I really got into, as so many people do, exercise, you know, extreme exercise. You know, this mm-hmm. was kind of going for five-hour mountain runs. And I think at some point, you know, my body couldn't take it anymore. And number two, you've got to have more manageable ways of managing your stress levels on a daily basis. So for the last year, I've been I'm a very organized person. So, I mean, you know, I think this this kind of cliche of the quite disorganized CEO, but I am am possibly too structured in my days. I wake up early. I journal. I have religiously journaled for many years now. And I actually visually journal. So I will actually sketch the day that happened before. And I will sometimes sketch what I think is going to happen in a specific day. And I kind of have a sense of where the business needs to be in terms of the impact that we're creating in the world in the next three to six months. But I really, really think a lot further than that. I have the big vision of what we want to do. And then I get right to the right. What's What's it going to look like and feel like in three months time? And so I sense check that in my journal. And then I love doing like a bit of yoga and breathing work. I've really discovered breathing work in the last year, which just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? This idea of like breathing, surely we're breathing all the time. But wow, you know, these breathing sessions are just deeply, deeply emotional. And um, I found the first one I did actually quite terrifying (laughs) because, you know, it just was a very emotional experience. And you realize that you are not breathing. You know, that's what keeps us alive and keeps us level-headed and calm. I also love doing a bit of, on the weekends, you know, I'm really strong on, you know, having at least a day where work is put to one side, you know, and I'm very, very strict with that for the business, especially, you know, I don't want to become that culture of midnight emails. It's very important that people have their rest time. For me, that would be putting the device away, doing some volunteering work. You can get very sucked into your mission, your vision, what you're doing. And I think to disconnect from that every week for at least a day and tap into something a bigger meaning, something bigger, other people is super important. And for some people that is through their families. Um, For some people that's through their religions. However you want to do it, I think tapping into that kind of higher purpose is so important because it puts everything into perspective. Right. No, it makes a lot of sense. The balance, the disconnecting, keeping the boundaries right and keeping your head straight. I love hearing the thoughts from senior executives on how they just get through the day. Well, listen, um, I guess one last set of questions that would be helpful uh, to the audience here is, you know, obviously we're all the people on the call here are, are running organizations. They have teams that count on them. You know, if you just think, what what are some specific guidelines or tips that you would ask them to think about in terms of how they lead their work lives in particular and bringing more joy to the people around them. You've covered some of them, but I'd just like to hear you maybe have a bit of a wrap up what you'd like people to take away on what we've talked about. For me, joy at work is being in a learning environment and every day feeling like you are acquiring new skills that allow you to solve problems better. So what problems are you trying to solve as an organization? And are you creating a an environment 
where learning is symbiotic. It's not uh, something that takes you away from work. It's something that is just an intrinsic part of the work that you do. And I think if you manage to crack those two things, then you're going to start creating incredible solutions and an incredible environment of growth and joy. What you just said is very resonates very much with me. We have in our people agenda at our company of what we call the Dial Initiative: diversity, inclusion, apprenticeship, leadership. You know, dial up the culture, do it every day, etc. Which is working. But as I listen to our podcast today, I'm thinking about changing that L to learning because that becomes the basics, the fundamental raw materials for leadership. Right. Being willing to learn yourself and having the organization learning. But this has been very inspirational uh, and very insightful. I picked up some new tips and I hope our audience has well. Catherine, thank you very much for taking the time to share your fascinating journey in the world of learning, joy, work, success and personal diaries. Thank you so much. If you're looking for ways to bring more joy into your work, subscribe to Joy at Work in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear about what you are learning these days. Share on social media with the hashtag Joy at Work. If you have ideas for future topics or guests, please email us at joy at atcarney.com. This podcast is produced by AT Carney. We're a global management consulting firm. We try to find joy in helping our clients tackle their biggest challenges. Learn more at atcarney.com slash joy at work.